Uh, we'll ignore that. Um, okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come in a peaceful environment <clears throat> to the Word of God. We're thankful that we enjoy this privilege, not because we have earned it, but just because of your grace. When we think of other Christians around the world today who are being hunted down and killed, or just being persecuted or suppressed in their witness, uh, we realize that the body of Christ uh, is in pain. And we do pray that you would sustain those believers in those high-pressure situations through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through recall of the truths of the Word of God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Because we've had a few interruptions and so on, um, what I'd like to do is uh, take you to a totally fresh passage where a believer is dealing with a life threatening problem, maybe not life-threatening, but a major problem in his life, and I want you to see if you can spot the logic and how he resolves the issue, okay? So this is just an exercise to get to the point that I've made. You, it's nice to study all the prophetic details, and we're doing that, though not like we would if this were a class in prophecy, but at least we're doing it in the general schema. Um, <clears throat> But there's always a danger of losing the forest with the trees. So we're going to take a few minutes tonight at the beginning to just dive into a passage of Scripture. And we're just going to observe a person in turmoil and how this person in the middle of the turmoil uh, used eschatology to solve his problem. So if you'll turn to Psalm 94, please. We'll look at that. This could be one, any one of the 150 Psalms. The book of Psalms is an excellent book to go to when you're having personal difficulties for several reasons. One is because the book of Psalms um, actually are biographical accounts of real people in real nasty situations most of the time. And... Uh, it's a report that the Holy Spirit considered important enough to put in the canon of Scripture. So, just think of the book of Psalms sometime for just examples. A book of Psalms also teach doctrine. Uh, they teach various principles. But the book of Psalms primarily is wisdom literature. And there are categories of, of, of literature, and wisdom literature in the Bible, you can think of it this way, um, is really the art of living. Wisdom is um, the, the principles of life. And almost every area is covered somewhere in the wisdom literature. But in Psalm 94, uh, we have a problem that um, we all have at times. Uh, the Psalm 94 is part of the, obviously, part of the 90s. And the Psalms that are in the 90s section, 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, are sometimes referred to as the enthronement Psalms. And the reason they're called the enthronement Psalms is that they tend to have a very eschatological motif to them. That is, the psalmist is distinctly looking to the time when Jehovah will come on earth and set up his kingdom. So, the enthronement means the enthronement of Jehovah, which we now know to be Christ incarnate. 
Okay, in Psalm 94, uh, I want you to look at the logic. Psalms, uh, there's various types of psalms. Um, if someday we teach a class on psalms, uh, we'll go through the different styles. There's the lament psalms, there's the praise psalms, there's the declarative praise, there's the descriptive praise. Um, there's the national lament, there's the individual lament. There are just all kinds of categories in there that people look at. This one, obviously, is an individual and he has a problem, so it's sort of a lament involved in it. And the verse, first verse, he says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? I guess there's some people in the Iraq tonight saying that. How long will, will this regime go on? And... You'll also notice there's a boldness in these psalms. Um, there's really a command here in verse 2. The, the psalmist is not afraid of going to God in anger sometimes. A lot of the psalms, in fact, there's one psalm, and I can't think of it right now, when I was translating it in the Hebrew years ago when I had proficiency in Hebrew. Um, I remember being shocked, actually shocked, at looking at the verbs that I was looking up. Because basically what the psalmist is saying is that he was discouraged because the temple had, had fallen, the Babylonians were all over the place, the Iraqis were all over the place. And um, so he, he was so angry at God, he actually looks up to Jehovah and he says, get your hands out of your cloak and come down here and walk through this mess. Now, if you imagine, if somebody did that in a prayer meeting, uh, how that would be received, in a, you know, in the average church prayer meeting. People would consider that rude. they consider that uh, the guy was out of it. Too much anger, shouldn't have anger, you know. Um, funny part is, however, that God listens to those kind of prayers. Because the point is, they're going to God. Not going to other people. Not going to gimmick solutions. But directing it back to God, with whom we have to do. So this is one of those cases where in verse 2, there's a very strong, this guy's hot under the collar here. There's a lot of emotion in these words. And he's asking for God, go judge of the earth, get going, move it. There's an urgency here about God not resolving the evil issue. And now in verse 4, you notice it shifts. If you look at verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 3, to whom is he speaking? Just observe the text there. Look at those three verses. And what's the emphasis? Who's the object of the psalmist? Well, who's he talking to? Okay? God. Right? That's the Lord. Now look what happens in verse 4. Observe the text. That's how the Holy Spirit can strengthen your souls when you learn how to eat the, the meat of the Word of God. And you can't eat the meat of the Word of God if you don't observe the text. That's the first step. So, observe that in verses 1, 2, and 3, he's talking to God. And now in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, and 8, he's talking apparently to God, but indirectly in the sense that he's complaining. And in this lament motif, this section from verses 4 to 7 would be considered the complaint. So he's come to God in the first three verses. He's hot under the collar. He's angry about the situation. 
And now in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, he begins to describe the situation, what it is that makes him mad. So this is, this is the, the interesting thing that you get out of the Psalms. Forget all being pious and religious and just read it like you were the person. And th- this complaint that comes. Notice how he phrases the complaint. They utter speech. They speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger. They murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Now, the paraphrase in verse 7, that that quote, yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand, is, is probably not necessarily that they're going around saying that explicitly, but that's the, what's going on in their heart. And he, the guy's not stupid. He's lived. He's been around. He can tell attitudes. And these people have an attitude. And the, the, behind the attitude is a false doctrine or false theological belief. So think about verse 7. The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. That's a remarkable insight into the human heart and how depravity works. Because they're doing the evil things in verse 4, 5, and 6, but they're doing it out of the fantasy that God lost his omnipresence. So the evil coexists always with false theology, even when we're dealing with our own flesh. Our own flesh is a great theologian, and it will generate false doctrine faster than you can say it. That, that's, that's the depravity of our hearts. We, we love false theology. We love to deny doctrine when we're out of fellowship. And this goes back to the Garden of Eden, because what did Adam and Eve do? They fled. Now, why would they flee an omnipresent, omniscient God? Well, clearly because they thought he wasn't omnipresent and omniscient. Maybe they could hide in the bushes. Well, the fact that they thought they could hide in the bushes shows you what theology did they hold? A false theology. See how sin spawns false theology. All false theology comes forth from sin. And so here's the false theology in verse 7. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And verses 4, 5, and 6 are what they're doing. They go around killing people at random. No problem. God doesn't see this. He's not really here. I can get away with it. I can get away with it. See, that's always the, the art form behind sin. So this is the man's complaint. If you notice, as a complaint, this, what the psalmist is doing here, do any of you observe something in this complaint that makes you think that this guy's arguing a case while he's making the complaint. He's not just complaining. How does he phrase the complaint so that he would imagine that God should take notice of this particular complaint? Where does he... Anybody notice in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7 where this guy... Marita. Yes. Notice in verse 5. He uses God, he weaves God into the issue. So he's not just complaining what they're doing to me. He's complaining what they're doing to God. Now that is a powerful truth about levering your prayer requests. Just really just a practical point about prayer requests. 
Because that's what's going to happen here. Basically, this guys he's, he's angry that God hasn't done something, and he's trying to get God to move it. Now, what is he going to do to make God move? Well, God is going to be concerned with his glory. Basic theology. Doxological. So he's saying, look, God, they're desecrating your reputation. Because every time they do this, they break in pieces your people, O oh Lord. They afflict your heritage. What they're doing is they're making it look like you don't care for your people when you elected them. You chose them. You have a sovereign plan for history. And they just get shoved all over the place. What kind of a testimony is that? And God is very concerned about his glory. Because there's several passages in the Old Testament that very poignantly show that. When he says, Israel, I'll come to your aid not because you're so great. But my name is there, and I'm concerned about my own reputation. I mean, it almost sounds like he doesn't care for Israel, but that's not really the case. It's just that he made this promise, and it looks like he doesn't keep his promises, which reflects on his character. So therefore, he says, I'm going to take care of this situation. But notice how the psalmist complains by weaving you. He gets God in the middle of the complaint. Verse 5 is a very clever phraseology, because by bringing... Um, God into that picture. Uh, for those of you who came in late, it's Psalm 94. We're just going through this psalm as a practical illustration of eschatology being applied to personal problems. So, the first three verses is the psalmist has addressed God. He's angry at God for not solving this problem of evil. And then in verses 4 through 7, he makes his complaint. Now, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11... Um, it's hard to, to distinguish whether what he's doing here is talking to himself about the situation or actually addressing the people that are involved with this, the evil people. But whatever it is, notice the progress in the song. The, the, first, there's the raw, bare, naked emotion in verses 1 to 3 of getting angry at God about the situation. Then in verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, there's a rationale in all this. The guy's thinking it through. Remember, that's, that's important. We don't feel our way to God. We think our way. He, he demands some response here. You can't be on drugs and, and have a mystical experience and think that's contact with God. Contact with God is always with the mind, active. The mind can't be shut off drugged into a stupor or whatever, the mind has to be active. That's why the Lord Jesus, while he was dealing with sin on the cross, he refused medicine, medication. Didn't get the, the sponge of stuff until after he was thrown. Then he accepted it. Why is that? Because while he was going through the stress, he needed to think. Yeah, it was painful, but in the middle of the pain, he had to be able to think because you can't talk to God without thinking. So he was trying to protect his mind while this was going on. And so here, the mind, in verse 4, 5, and 6, and 7, at least he's, he's getting into a groove where he's able to bring the complaint back up to God in such a way that he can make a case why God ought to do something. See, in verse three, 2 and 3, he's just angry at do something. But now he's arguing why he should do something. There's a reason, God, why you should be concerned with this. Now, he apparently has a little bit more confidence because by verses 8, 9, and 10, and 11, he begins an analysis of the nature of the problem. And 
this actually, as you think about it, we've all, as believers, have had this experience. First, you're upset. But if you find in the middle of being upset, you can go back to God, and after a while, your spirit calms down, and you can begin to think through the problem better. So now, verses 8, 9, 10, 11 are actually his own analysis of what's going on. He says, understand you senseless among the people and you fools. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nation, shall he not correct? He who teaches men knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. What do you observe in verses 8, 9, and 10 that is related to... The false theology of verse 7. Now, this guy's thought about his problem. He's just not gagging on, a, on an issue here. He's, he's thought through something very carefully. Remember what we said, verses 4, 5, and 6 are the actions that are going on, but verse 7 is the motive behind those actions. Verse 7 is a false theology. It's a sinfully born, sinfully triggered theology. It's a deception of darkness that these people have. Now, what do you notice in verse 7? Think of one of the attributes of God. That's the easy way. By the way, that's an easy way in a lot of these texts. If you want to get your muscle, your soulish muscle involved in the text, and you're puzzled sometime, one easy way of at least getting the juices flowing is to say, okay, what attribute of God is this guy zeroing in on? Could be three or four attributes, but, I mean, just, you know, for starters. What do you think the attribute is in verses 9 and 10? His omniscience, omnipresence, um, that he's got that. Now, isn't that interesting that he would think of those two attributes? Because up in verse 7, what is the attribute being denied? His omnipresence. So, by the time we get to 8, 9, 10, and 11, the psalmist is already taking true theology and doctrine and opposing it directly at the point of rebellion. He's able to spot in the situation, here's his problem and it's going, it's a big mess out there, but he understands that, that the people that are doing this have a false theology. And he knows what is false about their theology. He's got it pegged exactly what their problem is. So what does he do? He reaches over in the doctrines and truths that he knows, that he's been taught, that he's remembered, doctrines and things that he's learned from the Word of God over the years, and he reaches down in that memory and he pulls out just exactly the truth that argues against that point. Bam! And he puts him in collision. And here we have the collision going on. There's the battle. There's the spiritual battle. It's not seeing lights it's not rolling on the floor. It's the collision of truth with falsehood. So, so he goes on and he starts to see that. He says, God is going to hear. Omniscience. Now, he, he, he returns because he's still got an evil problem. He hasn't resolved it yet. He says, Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance, but judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Now, where in verses 12 through 15 do you observe him bringing in eschatology? 
See, eschatology is a very powerful tool here. And he's using it. And this is a biblical example of how prophecy is used to control a disaster. A disaster, I mean, inside the soul. Because if you don't have the power of a rigid biblical eschatology, you fall apart in situations like this. You don't have any strength. The strength you get inside comes from these great prophetic truths of who it is that controls history and where is history going. If history is going in the big sense to a certain goal, you're part of history and therefore your life has meaning and purpose. But you can't get to that point um, if you don't have a confidence that history is going somewhere and it's going to be by God's plan and there are specific things to look at in how he's moving history along. History is not static. It's not cyclic like the Greeks. You know, you go around five times. Nothing than that. You know, you go around once in the scripture, not five times. And then after death is the judgment. History in the Bible is linear. It's progressive, not cyclic. So, you notice, let's go in verse 12. He's talking about the source of his confidence. Blessed is the man whom you instruct and teach out of your law. So again, the strength goes back to the Word of God. It goes back to people who are paying attention to the Word of God, who are learning from it, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity. Now that's kind of like a purpose clause, verse 13. And the implication is that you can't have rest in the days of trial, in the, in the pressures of life, if you're not instructed out of the law. Unless you know the truths of Scripture, then you will not have rest. The reason for the instruction from the Word of God is that purpose. We may have a rest from the days of adversity until... Now, the days of adversity don't go on forever and ever. There's the eschatology. Until, until the pit is dug for the wicked, there will be a day of reckoning. So that's why eschatology. Here is an example that I want you to see. And he continues this. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord has been my help, my soul would have soon settled in silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. Now look at verse 19. What a wonderful promise verse 19 is. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. Let's take that apart. Let's look carefully at that. In the multitude of my anxieties. So this guy is upset. He has a lot of things going on inside. Because a lot of things are going on in his life outside. And you know, there's a whole multitude. There's a crowd of these anxieties within me. The battles, the big battles aren't outside of your soul. They're in the soul. They're in our minds. 95% of the struggle in the Christian life is up here. It's not in the overt circumstances. They're bad, yeah. But the struggle is always in our heart. That's where the battle goes. And that's why knowing the Word of God is so important. Because you've got to have something circulating in your soul that stabilizes you and gives you a reference point when these, these things hit. Otherwise, you're flubbing all over the place. good example is right now you have all this probably coverage of a war like we've never seen before. And all of a sudden, people are discovering war is bloody. And it's messy. And gee, this isn't a video game. And all, this is real history here. 
Then we have people falling apart, that the, the whole world's gone because we lost five Marines or something. And it's terrible that five guys got killed. I mean, it could be my son. He's in the military on the front line, not there, but another, facing another idiot, North Korea. And um, so it's bad, yeah. But the world hasn't come to an end here. What did Jesus say? There will be wars and rumors of wars until I come. Don't be upset. Why, why is there war? Now, it's always amazing to me to watch the anti-war people. These are retreads from the Vietnam days, I think. And they, they come out like cockroaches every time there's food around or something. But the anti-war people come out on these demonstrations and like in Portland, Oregon, I was at a conference where the pastor was from Portland, Oregon, so he was telling me all this. They come downtown Portland, <clears throat> tear up, burn up police cars, tear up homes, and so on. Now, excuse me, I thought this was about peace. Maybe I'm missing something here. But here these people are, worrying about violence and war, and what are they doing? Doing exactly the same thing. See? And the reason that they're doing that is because they have ulterior motives. Some of them are anarchists. He was telling me that the group that's in Portland, any, every five months there's another cause that comes up for them to riot. Um, if they can think of something, they obviously have a lot of time on their hands and must not be very productive people because they have nothing, all this time to waste to go out in the streets. You know, most people have a, have a job to do instead of hanging around the streets. But these are the people, these anti-war people, and they love to be judgmental, see, because they're pointing to a, something's wrong. And you know, the funny thing is, they can't tell you why it's wrong. It's their opinion against yours. So it's interesting Do you hear the moral relativists who could care less, fornicating, drug-taking idiots who are taught all of a sudden we bring morals into a question. Excuse me? What happened? Where are you getting that from? So if you do happen to get in a conversation with somebody like that, say, by what standard are you saying it's wrong? And it just ask the question. No threatening. Somebody is, by what standard is war wrong? Just war in general. Well, I think it's terrible. Why is it terrible? Maybe it's... Uh, and then you could throw Darwin in and say, Darwin says survival of the fittest. Wars are healthy. They get rid of the weak and inherit the strong. And uh, just see what they say to that. See, what you're doing is you're making fun of unbelief. <clears throat> For a, see, they were so proud of their unbelief. We were the idiots, the Christians. But you turn that around, make them to be the idiot. <clears throat> because here they are making moral judgments, and they haven't got any foundation to make the judgment with. By what standard? Remember the question. By what standard? By what? Keep pushing back. By where, where do you get the standard from? Where do you get the standard? They say, well, where do you get your standard from? Jesus Christ. And, oh, well, that's just your opinion. No, it isn't. I respect Jesus more than I do you. That's for sure. And so I have this standard. And it's an absolute one. And I can show you where there's just wars and unjust wars. It's all spelled out in Scripture. And if you were, you know, let's say, if you were an intelligent person and had time to read, you could read the same thing I read. But... The point is that what we're seeing here is everybody panicking because we've got a war. Most of the history we've had wars. 
So the point is, you have to have a, a, a reference point, a compass, something stable. So yeah, the war, you can go through, but you don't fall apart because of all this. You just keep on going because you have a standard, because history is bigger than the war, and history is going somewhere. God could have an interesting purpose in all this. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that the two places in the world the Bible speaks the most of is Jerusalem and Babylon. And where do you think the big battle is going to be? It's right almost within miles of Babylon. And here we are, after 21 centuries of history, when people laughed at literal interpretation of Scripture and allegorized it and said, God's kingdom isn't going to be here and Jerusalem really isn't Jerusalem. It's a spiritual Jerusalem or a spiritual Babylon or Babylon's Rome or something else. Isn't it interesting that the world is held spellbound by what is happening in these two places? It, it, it's all over again. Jerusalem and Babylon. It was true in uh, the time of Nimrod, right after the Noahic flood. It was true all during the Old Testament. And here it is true today. And you'll also notice something else about what's going on in history, is that the three countries who are the big opponents of America in the Security Council, the three big ones, Russia, Germany, and France, are the three out of the four most anti-Semitic nations on the planet. Where do you have Jewish synagogues desecrated regularly? France. Which country killed more Jews than any other country? Germany. And which country has driven their entire Jewish population to Israel? Russia. The fourth country I didn't mention, of course, is Poland. They have been traditionally very anti-Semitic also. Don't happen to be that right now, apparently. But the point is that it's interesting to watch how things are developing here. It's almost as though after this whole episode goes away or gets halfway resolved, it's going to be interesting to watch if God splits off the United States out of... There becomes such animosity between the United States and the European powers that, that we're separated now, more like we were two or three hundred years ago. Pull troops out of Germany, maybe, and say, bye-bye. Next time you want help, call someone else. And if that happens, it's good, because it's the European cesspool where the revived Roman Empire is going to form, the Antichrist and all of his power. That's where it's going to be in that area. So by getting our country out of it, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's what the Lord's doing here. Because we're in it primarily because of Israel. And Israel has a purpose in history. And God is not going to let Israel be destroyed. So here in the Psalm 94, in verse 19, we have an example of stability. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts. Now, let's look at the word comforts. It's plural. It's a plural noun, comforts. Now, where, what are the comforts? Well, you have to go into the context. What's the context? Well, verse 17, 18, he's talking about God's mercy to him. The concept of mercy, however, in the Old Testament is the concept of covenant love. It's loyal love, which in back of that lies the Mosaic Covenant and the covenants with Israel. You notice verse 14 and 15 again reference that covenantial commitment, the contract that God has, the contract that God will keep in history. So the comforts 
that he's talking about that delight his soul are the truths of God's plan, including eschatology. See, and this is why I want to spend this time tonight, because eschatology is what gives stability. It's eschatology that gives you the big picture. Verse 20, Shall the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. But the Lord has been my defense and my God the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity. And notice it's past tense in verse 23. And that's often a thing that you notice in the Hebrew text of Psalms. And that is that as this starts out in present tense, and then all of a sudden, the psalmist speaks as though the whole problem has been resolved. Past tense. In most cases, there's no evidence the problem was resolved. So how do we explain these past tenses? Like the verb in verse 23. We have to explain it this way. We have to say that those kinds of past tenses are prophetic past tenses. That is, so overwhelmed is the psalmist with the eschatology, with the promises of God, with a contractual program that he can see way down the corridors of time and in his consciousness, in the middle of his problem, his problem is here. What he has been able to do using eschatology, he has been able to step away from the problem, look down the corridors of time, stand in the corridors of time, and look back and see that God's resolved the problem. He's only able to do that because of the eschatology that's involved in this. So that's a little sample of many things that we could refer to in Scripture. So if you'll turn now to the the notes, we're back at 137, and we're looking at pre-tribulationism. We've looked at the different views, again, to review the issues in eschatology primarily concern how to mix and match in a coherent way the program that God outlined for Israel in the Old Testament and the program that God outlines for the church in the New Testament. Traditionally, Reformed theology has argued that basically this is the same body. And and we have to agree sociologically, yeah, uh, there are elect people in Israel, elect people in the church. And yeah, there's one group of believers all down through history. But, but there's different teams, if you will. There's different um, maneuvers that God goes through in history. So how do you put these two maneuvers together? Well, we said we went through pre-tribulationism and introduced it last time and said pre-tribulationism is like this. It takes the seven years of Daniel's 70th week there. It takes those seven recognizes as mid-tribulationism that there's a midpoint here, recognizes that the second half is called the Great Tribulation. That is the phrase that's used for that three and a half years. It's true, it's not used for the whole seven. The Great Tribulation recognizes that the day of the Lord has multiple meanings in Scripture. It can refer to an instantaneous event or a period of time. So, pre-tribulationism argues that day of the Lord can have the larger meaning for the whole tribulational period, as well as the small, narrow meaning of the great and terrible day of the Lord when the Lord Jesus comes back, the the return. But what pre-tribulationism does, pre-meaning before, it places the rapture, and I should really draw this as a broken line, it places the rapture 
out ahead of the tribulation. Now, what this difference in time is, we don't know. We do not know that. And there's no scripture that tells us that. It could be years. It could be minutes. We don't know. But in pre-tribulation, all that has to happen is the rapture precedes the revelation of Christ. Now, notice a feature about this view. By doing this, two things immediately, if you look look at the chart carefully, you'll see that two things immediately occur. Observe, number one, that if the rapture happens before the start of the tribulation, if that's true, what does that tell you about signs that the rapture is near? That the rapture is predictable, rather. Not just near, but predictable. There is no sign. The first concrete sign is when when the covenant, the Antichrist makes his covenant or treaty with Israel. But apart from that, there is no imminent sign of the rapture. The rapture then, in pre-tribulationism, and here's the key difference. In pre-tribulationism, the rapture is imminent, meaning that it is not prophesiable. It could happen today, it could happen tomorrow, it could happen 55 years from now. There's no way of telling it. And that's a feature true only of pre-tribulationism. All the other views, by placing the rapture inside the 70th week, allow you, once the 70th week starts, to predict it. It's a predictable event. In pre-tribulationism, the rapture is not a predictable event. Okay, so let's develop that logic a little further. So, we'll say that here is the rapture is not predictable. Now, every once in a while, you'll get somebody that writes a book and talks about the rapture is going to happen. Some recent art or somebody said the rapture is going to happen in 1988. Um, if you're a futurist, people, there's no way you can date set. Everybody who tries to set dates makes the book of Revelation be true now. In other words, the clock is running now. Or if it wasn't running, they wouldn't be making the dates. The very fact that someone is going to try to date the rapture tells you immediately that they think a clock is running, that they can check this text or that text and compute this and add these days and get that. Well, that implies there's a clock running. But what did we say when we introduced this whole chapter back months ago? Israel is the one who has the clock. The church is never given a clock. So, beware when you hear somebody date setting. Now, let me qualify that. That's not to say that we can't say that it seems like God is arranging the furniture for a little thing that's going to happen here. Now, what events can you cite objectively in history that suggest that God is bringing the furniture into play within the last three or four generations of people that is utterly unknown in the rest of church history. Number one, what have we had? We've had the return of Jews to Israel. That 1948, all of a sudden now there's a nation of Israel. Name another group of people, by the way. Here's a good exercise for you. Go back in history 
and try to identify any group, any group, anywhere, any people group that disappeared and reappeared as a nation 25 centuries later. Find one. Now, maybe there is one, but I haven't found one. Where a people group was destroyed, dispersed, their nation was crushed, and they disappeared. And then it took five plus two thousand, five centuries, 586, five centuries up to Christ, and then 2,000 years, so you have 20 centuries this side. Now, plus five plus 20 is 25 centuries. Find a people group that disappeared nationally and then resurrected nationally 2,500 years later. That's amazing. In 1948, that happened. What happened in 1967 that was prophetically interesting? Jerusalem. The Israeli armies entered Jerusalem. Now, they don't own Jerusalem. Jerusalem is shared. And the world is really still angry at the Jews for occupying Jerusalem, when in fact, what people have been more identified with Jerusalem down through history than anybody else? You say. It's like uh, saying the English don't have a right to London. So, the point is that we have that happened. Now, in this Iraqi conflict, we're having something interesting happen. The big battle is very imminent, right in the geographical spot, practically, only down the river, a few kilometers from Babylon. So now something new has been added to the equal. We don't know what God's doing now. Are we saying the rapture is going to happen next week? It could happen. It could happen tonight. It could happen and not happen until you've had a kid and grandson somewhere. But the point is that it looks like things are filling out, that God has things he's doing before our eyes. And we live in a very exciting time of history to see that behind all the king's men and all the people and the politicians and people voting this way and voting that way and demonstrating the streets and wanting this and wanting that, behind it all is his sovereign hand. History is moving the way he wants it to move. And interesting things are happening. Now, if the rapture is not predictable, there follows from this something else that, that falls out of this picture. What we're trying to do is just think a little bit about the inherent logic of this position, just like we did the other positions. If the rapture is not predictable, and if it can come at any time, then what is the focus of the hope of the church? The future focus, in other words, what the church looks forward to historically. If it's not a sign, and it's not the Antichrist, and it's not the tribulation, what is the church's focus? The return of the Lord. Now, isn't that interesting? Because when Paul deals with death in Thessalonica, he doesn't talk about the Antichrist. He doesn't talk about the prophetic signs. What does he talk about? He talks about the coming rapture, that we will be with the Lord. There's the focus. So, the other feature of pre-tribulationism is that the focus equals the rapture. Not uh, the tribulation. In fact, one post-millennialist wrote a book looking forward to the Antichrist. Now, on his position, I can see why he'd have to say that. Because the Antichrist, who's going to come first in his position? 
Christ or the Antichrist? It's going to be the Antichrist. So what do you look forward to? The Antichrist. Now, isn't that sweet? That's a great hope. So, in pre-tribulationism then, you have the focus on the Lord coming for His people. That's the great hope of the church. They call it the blessed hope. The hope that makes happy. Okay, so that's the diagram of the, of the pre-tribulational position. Now, by moving the rapture out ahead of the tribulation, it resolves a problem that we've seen in all the other views. And what was the problem? They all flounder around on Eventually, it catches up with them. The Bible promises the church will not see the what of God. The wrath of God. If this is the period of the wrath of God, then how does the church not see the wrath of God if it goes through the wrath of God? Well, and, and you remember the devices. Some of them say, well, the wrath of God really isn't this, this whole seven years. It's, it's down here at the end, or the three-quarter people say it's down here, or the mid-trib people say it's here, but not in the first half. And the criticism of that is, since it's Jesus ripping the seals of judgment off, He's unleashing judgments. What is he? Is he not divine? Is God not causing judgments to happen? Is this not the wrath of God when he's breaking the seals? So, so this has to be compromised. Now, another way to be fair to the adherents of these positions is that they sometimes visualize the church as, as what? Because they've got to deal with the wrath of God. If they don't have this problem... Out here, they've got to say that the church is somehow protected from But your post-trib does have the problem because he doesn't get the rapture going until the last part. So now he's got all this wrath, 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 wrath to deal with. And so one way they have of trying to escape that problem is to protect the church in some way like, and their example would be, Israel and the Exodus. But the problem with that, that, that maneuver is that when you look at the text of the book of Revelation, you find believers being martyred. It doesn't look to me like the church is being protected there, if that's the church. So, in pre-tribulation, it doesn't have that problem because it moves the rapture out ahead of the whole thing. And so, it has a way of explaining it. And moreover, if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 3, in fact, we'll look at, at Revelation 2 and 3 for some of the observations of, of the letters to the seven churches there. But in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, the key in that verse... is because you have kept my commandment to persevere, which may be attached to verse 9, may not even be part of verse 10, actually, in the Greek. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, notice it doesn't say, I will keep you from the trial. What does he say? I will keep you from the hour of trial. That is, the time of trial. It's pretty hard to think how God's going to keep the church from the time of trial if he doesn't get the church out of that period of history. Not an airtight argument, but but I think it's useful. But while we're in the book of Revelation, if you turn to, say, for example, um, uh, Revelation chapter 2. Let's see if I remember my reference. Um, 
Let's see. Um, yeah, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Here's a, here's a, notice the logic of the Lord's letter here. The Lord is, is, is instructing this church that's being persecuted. The church is going through, through an awful period of time. And the Lord's direction to endure those trials is do not fear any of the things which you are about to suffer. Now, how about that one? Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, is the Lord promising them that they will escape death? Evidently not. So here's a situation where the Lord's focus, however, he doesn't go into an elaborate discourse in the revived temple. He doesn't talk about Antichrist. He talks about being faithful to him, even if it means dying for him, because I will give you a crown of life. There's a reward and immortality for this behavior. So where's the focus? Then? The focus is how do you get to the immortality? By the rapture. By resurrection. The reward, in other words, that the Lord Jesus is talking about here is a post-resurrection reward. It's not a reward of surviving in history so you can see an earthly kingdom develop. That would be the hope of an Old Testament saint. The idea that, you know, God's going to set up the kingdom right here in Israel, in the land, in the temple, and so on. I want to see that. Of course, they will in their resurrection bodies, but the last generation, just prior to that kingdom, is not going to have resurrection bodies. They're going to go in, natural, in their natural bodies. So, Jesus is, is, makes no bones about it. The church will go through death, could be, could be raptured. But it's always on the post-resurrection blessings. The church's blessings are always seen in a resurrection light. They're not seen in natural body light. The blessings occur after the resurrection, not prior to the resurrection. So the focus is not on this life. It is on the life to come. Then we have, of course, the various things, the, the judgment seat and so on. Now, in the notes, in, in page 138, I referenced four arguments. There are more, but... For our discussion for Thursday night class, I guess it's okay here. There are four objections to pre-tribulationism. As I say, it's not without its difficulties. Critics have pointed to historical circumstances that occurred at the time of John Nelson Darby. So the number one argument is that pre-tribulationism is an invention of John Nelson Darby. Not only is it an invention of Darby, but the, the innuendo is that he borrowed it from a group of what we would call Pentecostals that were rolling in the aisles and seeing visions. So I want to address that issue right here. That's the first one. It's historically false, by the way, and I'll show you why. If you follow the paragraph on the bottom of page 138... 
And again, if you don't have page 130, I apologize. With my wife not here, I walked out and left the notes. See if you didn't have a copy. Apologize. Next week, we won't have class. I'll be out of town. But the week after that, she'll be here, and then everything will be orderly. First, regarding the historical circumstances, church historians have shown that Darby began to arrive at the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture by eight. Notice the dates. We have these documented. By 1827, while recovering from an injury. By the way, the background for Darby, he wasn't some idiot. Darby was an Episcopalian. He was a priest in the Anglican Church. And in particular, he was on a mission of all places for an Englishman. Guess. Not France. The other place they don't like. Ireland. So here Darby is trying to win Irishmen to the faith. And then all of a sudden the Anglican Church and all of its Anglo-arrogance says that in order to be a Christian, you've got to join the Anglican Church. And if you join the Anglican Church, it's a state church. And who is the head of the Anglican Church but the King of England? So now this really helps the evangelism in Dublin. So here this guy is trying to win souls to Christ in Ireland. And he has to say, well, gee, guys, after you become a Christian, you've got to join the Anglican Church and swear allegiance to the English king. You know, that really sells in Ireland. See? That's like selling ham at a Jewish picnic. So the problem here is that when Darby got to that point, he said, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Something stinks about ecclesiology. And so it caused him to think about something his professors had taught him. Because in the air, he had gone to a place, I believe it was called Trinity College. And at that place, we now know from historical research, there were circulating in the classroom the idea of, guess what? A literal hermeneutic. There had been a professor or two on the faculty of this place where Darby learned his theology who argued against the prevailing amillennialism of the Reformation and said there's something wrong here. The Reformers haven't done enough properly. So Darby had been triggered as a young boy, a young student, to think, wait a minute, let's interpret the Scripture literally here. Israel is Israel. And this must have been bouncing around the back of his head until he got this crisis with the Anglican Church telling him he had to get Irishmen to swear allegiance to the English king. And so, needless to say, he ruptured. That was it. And that's the start of the Plymouth Brethren. Plymouth Brethren, you've heard PB, the Plymouth Brethren come from Plymouth, England. And they were a group that split out of the Anglican Church. And it's historically the Plymouth Brethren who were the ones who amplified and promulgated at first pre-tribulationism. <clears throat> so it wasn't until 1830 that charismatic and unorthodox prophets and priestesses supposedly had visions which critics claim were the real source of pre-tribulationism. Serious examination of the 1830 utterances of prophetess Margaret MacDonald, she was this uh, gal who foamed at the mouth and went through different things and claims she had visions of Christ coming back. But now, after scholars look at her visions, they were written down, it turns out they're not pre-trib visions. So that's interesting how a non-pre-trib charismatic utterance in 1830 uh, was given to Darby in a pre-tribulation version in 1827. 
little difficult to get that together. Moreover, in recent years, scholars have discovered an essay, and this is an interesting one, by the founder of Brown University in Rhode Island, Reverend Morgan Edwards, date 1722 to 1795. Now, do your math. Look at the dates that describe a position close to pre-tribulationism that involves the rapture of the church and subsequent return with the Lord when he descends to the Mount of Olives. So now all of a sudden we have an earlier than Darby reference to men in the church thinking this issue through, beginning to separate the rapture and the return and beginning to play with this idea that, gee, you know, the church is separate. The rapture is going to have to precede things here. It was in the air for, for over a century. Now, even a more stunning advisement, because some of the post-tribs used to go around evangelical Christianity saying, ho, 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 I'll give $500 to anybody that can show that there's evidence of pre-tribulationism in the church before 1830. Okay. The guy that discovered this, friend, a friend of a friend of mine, uh, published the paper in a peer-reviewed journal and said, okay, pay up. Hadn't got paid yet. Scholars have also discovered a very ancient manuscript ascribed to a Syrian theologian in the Eastern Church called Ephraim. Now, this document is called Pseudo-Ephraim because they think it was a sermon that was preached in the eastern part of the Mediterranean in the name of Ephraim. But they're not sure it was Ephraim, so scholars call this Pseudo-Ephraim. Nobody knows. Anyway, this guy lived from 306 to 373, so I submit to you that that does go back a little bit in church history prior to the Reformation. He wrote about a tribulation period prior to the Lord's return of one week. Look at the language this guy's using. This is 306, folks. And he's already talking about the week of seven years and about an imminent rapture of Christians prior to that tribulation. So, what do you make of this? It's not like somebody had this idea in 1830 and, ooh, that's where pre-tribulationism came from. It's rather that men who have thought seriously and literally about the prophetic portions of the Old Testament were kind of playing with this idea for centuries. It's not something new. It's just that it was never developed. It was just kind of tossed out there and, you know, most people didn't pay any attention to it because what was going on in the first four centuries of the church? What was their concern? Trying to define who Jesus was. Let's get that straight first. And then in the Middle Ages, what was the issue? What did Jesus do on the cross? Was it a ransom to Satan? Or was it a propitiation of the Father's wrath? Or was the cross just a nice, sweet little martyr's death that we're all supposed to have heartthrobs over? And so finally, after the Reformation, the gospel. But the point I'm making is the reason why these issues, even if the guy did it in 306, it wasn't developed was because that wasn't where the Holy Spirit was leading the church at the time. All I'm pointing to in these references, folks, is that it is not a new idea. He wrote about a tribulation prior to the Lord's return. Notice the sequence. Lord's return, prior to that, a tribulation, and prior to that, an imminent rapture of Christians. Clearly, then, the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture has a long history, even though it was not systematically developed until the 19th century, back to the Bible movement. And it wasn't really Darby. Later on, it was the prophetic movement in eastern Massachusetts. They, they had Bible conference, Niagara Bible conference, where in 1868, 1870, after the Civil War and all the turmoil of the country, and the Civil War triggered 
a lot of people to think through their eschatology, as you can well imagine. It was a horrifying period of American history. And people, what do they do, see? In times of trauma, where do they go? They seek to know the big picture of where history is going. So there's no accident that, and of course you never get this in high school history courses because the people that write the curriculum, would, you know, they're afraid it might offend somebody to tell somebody the truth. What, what has happened here in the whole 1870 period is you had people going out for conferences all over New York and New England, summer Bible conferences, weeks long, and they would have speakers. And it wasn't, they weren't all preaching people. They were all people, however, who were premillennial. And they were even people who spoke in 1870 and 1880 about the fact that Israel would become a nation someday. And everybody said, oh, oh, oh never, never happened. Well, it did happen. So 70 years prior to 1948, these people in New England were talking about that Israel would have to come back. Why did they make that deduction? Let's think about it. Why do you suppose in 1878, in Niagara and the other Northfield, Massachusetts, why do you suppose that they then were thinking in terms of revived Israel if they were premillennialists? What did they know that led them to the conclusion that Israel would have to come back? Because when the Lord comes back, he comes back to what? A temple and a nation. So if they're at all literal... They've got to have a nation that's literal and literal land of Palestine around the literal hills of Jerusalem. So that's why prior to Hertz, the Zionism, prior to the, um, the trial in the French guy, what was the French guy that led to Zionism? The, um, can't think of the French army captain now. Milt, do you remember? He's a, he was a French army captain, and it was a famous trial in France. And the guy that was sitting in the back room in the trial was a Jew. The guy was a Jew. The um, name is on the tip of my tongue. I can't think of it. Uh, but he was a French army officer, and he was being persecuted because he was a Jew. And at the time in Israel, at that time in the Jews in Europe, they wanted to, they wanted to, what was it, Laura? Dreyfus, yes. The famous Dreyfus trial. Dreyfus was a French army captain. And the Jews in Europe at that time thought they could be safe if they could hide their Jewishness. So they kind of went like this. They slouched around. And Dreyfus was one of those Jews who thought he could be a good officer in the French army. See, here we go with France again. He thought he could be a good uh, army officer and people would leave him alone and wouldn't go after him because he was Jewish. And, and here he is. Now he's in a trial, court-martial trial. Well, sitting in the back room is a guy by the name of Theodore Herzl. And he's a young Jewish journalist. And he's sitting there and he's taking notes, taking notes in the trial. Day after day, the kid takes notes. And he walks home and he says to himself, you know what? We Jews are wrong. We are never going to be accepted in European culture. This civilization will never allow us Jews to assimilate. So, he began the modern movement of Zionism. And it was a search for a homeland for Jews. Herzl believed that the Dreyfus trial showed that assimilation failed in European culture. And it has. It always has. And it's failed for a reason. Because God is going to keep the Jew separate. 
whether even the Jews like it or not. They will be kept separate for a purpose yet to come. Three things for Israel, remember. They gave us the Bible. They gave us the Messiah. And what else are they going to give us? Yet to come. The kingdom on earth of the Messiah. So, so pre-tribulationism then is, is an idea that's been kicked around and emerges not because of some person. It emerges just once you start in with a literal hermeneutic. You wind up moving in that direction. This is where you, you move. Next, uh, not, not next week, but two weeks from now, we meet again, and hopefully we will then not have so many interruptions. Um, we're getting on the top of page 139, the Matthew 24 issue. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have a plan for history, a plan that is wonderful, a plan that will culminate in the permanent eradication of evil, that there will be no more tears, no more suffering, for those things have passed away. And Father, we understand tonight that there's only one way that we can be prepared for that future moment of history, and that is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the gateway has only one door. And Jesus Christ said, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man, no man comes to the Father except by me. So Father, we respect that. And we respect the fact that there's only one way of salvation, and that is through the finished, complete, atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that this would be clear in our own minds as a point of stability and that we would have the ability and capability and willingness to share this with others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, uh, we have a few minutes. Um, some of our time is shot, but are there any uh, questions? Yes. No questions. 20, yeah. Oh, that's a good point. And Israel has backed over this ridiculous position, this moral equation between um, Israel uh, going after terrorists in, in, in the so-called occupied territories. That that somehow is the moral equivalent of terrorism. Um, it just blows me away because and it shows you the inability of these people to argue in a rational way. Um, in the first place, if you know your history, the only reason why those lands are occupied is because they wouldn't behave themselves in the first place. Who was it that was supposed to invade Israel in 1967 when, uh, 67, yeah, 67, when that happened? Who started that war? It was Syria, Iraq, and Egypt, and they lost it. So stop fussing about the occupied lands. You guys started the war and you lost. So, you know, it's just a, it's a mess. It's too bad we have to even get involved with it. But. No, the, the question of the Palestinians is, prior to Arafat returning to the land in 1973, the word Palestinian meant Jew. 
There was no such thing as Palestinians. The Palestinians, when the Jewish regiments fought for the British in World War II, they were called the Palestinian Regiment. It was a Jewish regiment. It wasn't an Arab regiment. And so as Arafat that hijacked the term, and now he has all these Palestinians. Well, first of all, Palesh comes from the word Philistine. That's where the, the root of the word comes from. And the people who are called Palestinians today, uh, you know, they might have genes from Moab or something like that in them. But, I mean, it, it's, it's so mixed up, you can't, you can't tell very well. Um, well, the land was given to Israel, and Israel was booted out of the land, lost control of the land, and she still will not have control of the land until the Lord comes back and he without consulting the United Nations, will reformulate the, the boundaries of Israel. No, I don't believe so. I mean, I, the, the, the area has been known for Palestine for centuries. But the, the British kind of screwed things up too in that in World War um, One. They had Lawrence of Arabia going around making all these promises to the Arabs that the Arabs would help the British fight the Turks. Well, the problem was Jews had already moved into the land. And Lawrence of Arabia sort of, and there's, I guess, a debate about it, but he sort of left the impression that after World War I, if the Arabs had really helped the British fight off the Turks, I mean, helped the Arabs fight off the Turks, or helped the British fight off the Turks, then as a result and their reward they could have total dom dominion over Palestine. Well when that was being debated there was a guy by the name of Balfour and Balfour was the guy that made the Balfour Declaration that granted Jews certain rights in the land. So you had set up right from the start two groups of people promised two different things by the same group of people, the English. So they didn't do, when, you know, sometimes when the English get a little snitty about American statesmanship, they better think about their own history a little bit. Yes? And also, when that land was broken up, I mean, it started back in the early 20s, it started being promised out. Jordan didn't even exist. Uh, Britain never even considered Jordan in, in splitting all of this stuff up. That whole land all that, and that's, that's why I think it's pictured on, on uh, Joe Peter's book as so much bigger. It included that was, that was his world promised peace from Britain um, from back at that time up to 48. Then they came along and, and said, oh, well, my husband we forgot a king. And so they had to carve out Jordan. Well, they didn't carve it out from Saudi Arabia or any of these other ones. They took the land directly from the smallest that they had already, you know, carved out for the Jews and gave that and made that Jordan. So they were, I mean, Israel themselves, they were getting cut down from the very beginning because I'm not sure that didn't it also originally have the Negev promised to them as well? Yeah, well, they've kept the Negev. Okay. Negev has never fallen out of Jewish hands. <clears throat> but what, is, what is the part of Egypt between Israel and... Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula. The Jews in 1967 conquered the Sinai all the way over to the Nile River. 
And again, because of peace, the Jews backed up, they gave it back to Egypt, and pulled all the way back to the edge of the Negev. Israel has backed over backwards. And the interesting thing, I've been in communication with an Israeli meteorologist, and he was telling me how the day that the Oslo Accords were signed, it stopped raining in Israel. And basically they've been in a 10-year drought. And the day, the week, the very week that uh, that, um, Ariel Sharon said, Oslo is dead, began to rain again. And so, again, I mean, you can get spooky thinking about it, but it is interesting that Israel's had a 10-year drought and it broke this fall. That's why these dust storms that are bothering our troops right now, that's a storm track that's dumping rain on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was down something like, I don't know, 14 feet or something, and they've had 8 feet. It's the National Reservoir of of Israel, and it's up 8 feet. I guess it's only 2 or 3, 4 feet to go. So it's like God's blessed their socks off all winter. I don't know what the depth is, Lynn. It's just that whatever the norm is, it's still subnormal, and it's coming up to that normal line, sort of like our reservoirs here. But they've had a very severe drought. And the interesting thing meteorologically about the last few storm systems is kind of a rare event in that the storm that caused our snow here, that energy, spinning energy, uh, went across the Atlantic, I'm told by these guys. I didn't follow it myself. Uh, Went across the Atlantic, went into the Mediterranean area, and was the same piece of energy that caused the rain in Israel. And what's interesting is that's not how it usually happens. The storm systems in, that give rain to Israel normally come out of Europe, not from across the ocean. So, you know, the, this guy was just saying, he says, geez, and you know, you see that and you wonder whether some angel just triggered those two storms, uh, almost as if to show the unity between America and Israel. Well, he's a Christian. This is a, yeah. And the other thing that's kind of interesting, what's happening, it reminds me of a neat story, it's sort of encouraging to us about how the Lord works. The bus explosion, I mean, we worried about 16, 17 soldiers have been killed. Israel loses that in one bus thing. Um, and they're a smaller country than we are. And in that last bus uh, explosion, uh, the girl, 17-year-old girl, was killed. It was the daughter of the leader of Campus Crusade in Israel. Well, because she was an Israeli, or considered Jewish because the guy lives in Israel, the Israeli government had to send a representative to this funeral. Well, where the breakthrough happened, this exciting breakthrough for the Jewish community who are believers, is it was a messianic Jewish funeral. And the... the um, his, uh, not Moshe, but um, the guy that's the head of Israel, Ariel, Ariel Sharon, his representative came and listened to this whole Hebrew funeral that was Messianic Jews uh, explaining the gospel. And, of course, he had to say the proper clucking noises because he was there as as a dignitary of the Israeli government. And he said something, they say, at that funeral 
there was a breakthrough in the long antagonism between the Messianic Jewish community and the rest of Israel. They're considered sort of semi-loyal. And he said, um, because of your dedication, your obvious dedication to the land of Israel, um, it behooves, I believe, the present government to reconsider its relationship to the Messianic Jews of Israel. So this girl dying in that bus set up a funeral situation where the leadership of Israel came, was represented, heard the gospel, and are interested in Messianic Jews now. This is the never before has happened, apparently, in Israel's history, so, or in recent history. So um, that was kind of neat, just this little passing thing, how the Lord's hand is still, still working. He hasn't taken his hand off the steering wheel. Everything's under control. Any other questions? Yeah, the buildings where you were shaped even more than the building where I were shaped when those things go off? Oh, yeah, all the time. But it's not doing damage to buildings. If we're doing damage to buildings, um, it would, um, it wouldn't be a building left in the proving ground. But where do you work, Jenny? Yeah. And we just, and one day, I guess you know which day it was, when that really big thing went off. Yeah. I thought a tree had hit our building. We were running outside, and you know, but that Yeah. Well, that, no, that was, a, that was a situation where the... See, that sound that you're hearing in Harvard County normally goes over to the Eastern Shore. That's why the Eastern Shore people are always fussing. They, see, they hear it all the time. You guys hear it only under rare situations. I'd say they should fire the things off once a day so everybody hears it all the time and they wouldn't even listen to it. <laughs> so, um, to, to go back to um, talk about the Millennial Kingdom and stuff, when we think about um, the, the judgment with the sheep and the, the sheep and the goats and, and the nations and all that, um, it seems to me that the, the number of nations that are going to be going into the Millennial Kingdom because of their relationship I mean, yeah, you'd think so. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's true. Joyce has raised an interesting question, and I've heard that uh, interestingly in the last two weeks, batted around by some Bible prophecy people, um, that the Millennial Kingdom will have nations in it. Now, if you think about how the nations are established, they're established with this, this judgment of the sheep and the goats. And the, the, it's, it's their relationship to Israel during the tribulation, the, the survivors of different countries. And so, you know, what countries will be represented in the Millennial Kingdom? Um, and, and Joyce properly says, you'd think, based on anti-Semitism, that there's a pretty short list. So we don't know. But it's, it's kind of interesting. There are nations that historically have always been anti-Semitic. Um, Syria is one of them. The Arameans of Damascus have always been a nuisance to Israel. Um, Egypt, strangely, the home of the tyrant Pharaoh, uh, is considered to have a prophetic portion in the kingdom. It's not disciplined out, so that's kind of a funny one. Can you speculate any on the United States, Britain, uh, Western 
Now we can't. I don't think we can, Joyce, because for one reason, the United States is a very unusual kind of country. Uh, it's not like Japan that's racially homogeneous. The United States is really a strange thing because we're a mixing pot. And the Bible chases people through history by their genealogy. So you'd almost have to say, well, where are the people groups? And, and work backwards from that. It's, just, it's hard. We do know that the nations, there are nations that are said to be in the coasts. And that's what usually people like Walvoord and others say that we, we, if we're mentioned, we're mentioned as part of those nations of the coastlines. Because to the ancient person, getting boats on business, there would be these, these coasts, these remote coasts where they would do business. So that's how their Hebrew would refer to a distant land. But that's the only reference we know of. Okay, well, next uh, two weeks from tonight, we'll uh, finish up pre-tribulationism. And then, uh, well, we, I hope, well, maybe we won't, but we'll be pretty well through it. And then we'll go on and conclude the applications of eschatology. Sort of like Psalm 94 that we showed. Okay.